the design of good places to accidentally connect can help with um, the loneliness of an isolation of old age or just being single in the city. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Jane Jose is an urbanist, author and mentor who works as the CEO of the Sydney Community Foundation, a philanthropic trust. Like her near namesake, Jane Jacobs, Jane Jose is passionate about creating better public spaces. As she puts it, the city is our living room. When we walk out the door, everything but nature and the sky is designed. Raised in Adelaide, she served as Adelaide's Deputy Lord Mayor. She's written a column for the Adelaide Advertiser and then moved to Sydney to work for the Central Sydney Planning Committee. Her book, Places Women Make, is about the role of women in shaping our public spaces. Jane, thanks for joining me on the Good Life podcast. Fantastic to talk to you, Andrew. So what got you interested in urban issues as a young woman? Um, Well, when I reflect back, um, maybe it was my father, an engineer, driving us across the Hay Plain from Adelaide to Sydney when I was 10 to see two of the big ideas of the 20th century, the Snowy Mountain Scheme and the AMP building, which was sort of Australia's first skyscraper, really, on Circular Quay and the Opera House. I think sometimes, you know, childhood awakenings are quite formative. You grew up in uh, quite an old house, didn't didn't you? Uh, Did that shape your way in which you think about heritage? I think um, Adelaide's quite a a special city. I did grow up, I grew up in a turn of the century sort of rambling old house and garden and that was old Adelaide and a lot of people um, had a house and a backyard and I guess... um, if I jump forward from from that, growing up in a house with fruit trees and um, and always um, a, a sense of space, which you also had mm. in a city like Adelaide because of the ring of hills around it, um, then jumping to my early 40s and um, a sort of a sea change of sorts to Sydney Harbour and finding myself with grown-up children at university in an apartment um, for the first time in my life without that space of a garden. It made me even more acutely aware of the the real importance of the shared places of the city and Mm. the green spaces. When you went to university, though, you studied English rather than uh, a design profession like landscape architecture or urban design or uh, or architecture. What made you choose English? Um, Well, I'd always loved reading and literature. Um, I've written poetry and still write poetry, but none of it's published. Um, I think it it seemed um, a natural thing for me to do. In fact... um, 
I was always interested in ideas and at 16 at school, Richard Moorcroft, the former ABC mm. newsreader, and Tom Blackburn, SC, and I were three young people chosen to be on an ABC program called Confront, where we were confronted with people of authority and we questioned them. And um, those things, again, often shape, you know, who we become. So I was good at communication and it seemed that studying literature was um, just an important foundation for my life with the idea of becoming a journalist. It wasn't uh, that long out of university that you ran for Adelaide Council. Uh, what made you uh, put your hand up for elected office? Well, I guess um, a few things. One, um, tragically, my mother died when I was 28. So I had experienced that deep sense of grief, which is also an awakening that time runs out. Mm. So even at 28 or by the time I ran for council, I was, I was 34, but um, I had this sense that time is short and you need to use it well and you need to do something um, to contribute to make life better for others mm. and at the time um, I had two small children and I was living in um, a part of the city that had um, a lot of colonial heritage buildings which were being threatened by the development boom that happened across Australia in the 80s. So I actually ran possibly slightly naively just thinking well I need to fix this um, and with a platform, a mission to conserve the heritage character of Adelaide and also mm. to stop um, some rather bizarre development proposals on the parklands in Adelaide. What did you learn from being on, on council? Um, look, I think it's an in, anyone who's passionate about the city or cares about their community, um, it's an incredible place to learn actually how society how civil society works and ticks because um, councils have their tentacles in so many areas. But I also, um, I guess what I really learned at that time is that development means dollars and with colleagues um, like Elizabeth Farrelly, the journalist who was on the City of Sydney Council at the, at the time, we would talk about how do you stand between a man and a million dollars. Um, it was hard to, to argue mm. that there are other value systems at work. Uh, before we leave Adelaide, um, what is it that you love about Adelaide that mightn't be obvious to outsiders? Um, I think that I, uh, well, I know it has a very deep sense of community and it has a really deep sense of its place in Australia. Um, physically, there are certain things I love about it, the big blue desert sky um, and those summer nights that um, are, are very special to those who've grown up with the heat of the day and the cool of the night. Mm. Um, the inner city um, has, a, has a wonderful order. If you're interested in the way cities are shaped and planned, 
um, Colonel Light's plan for Adelaide, which gave it the green belt of parklands um, and the 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 idea of the cultural institutions and culture being something that from the very beginning of the colony was conceived as an idea that the people who lived in South Australia absolutely needed and it was planned and put centrally on North Terrace. So I'll stop, but there are... Um, and, of course, the role that, uh, that South Australia has played in Australia's cultural life. Uh, yes, it, uh, the combination of the planning and the Germanic heritage has always made, made it fascinating to me. Um, as a runner, I love the, uh, the long run you can do from the city all the way to the beach and back, uh, going, follow, following the river, going through magnificent parklands all the way. And at a later stage of my life, I actually worked with Hassel Architects mm. um, and that running track was designed by their landscape architecture practice. It's actually a flood mitigation scheme, <laughs> believe it or not. But but it is this great lung of park, yeah, mm. from the mm. hills to the sea. Yes, I, I often think about uh, John Bannon as I uh, as, as I run along there. Um, so uh, moving on to on to Sydney, what um, you made the move uh, to uh, to Sydney in order to. Uh, work at the Central Sydney Planning Committee. Um, what was it that, uh, that that you were engaged in? What were the challenges that uh, that brought you here? Well, in a sense, I'd had um, I, I made the move to Sydney for a number of reasons. I was sort of interested in working, I suppose, in a bigger urban platform, mm. and um, uh, I'd worked. With with an architectural practice in this city, also I'd been on boards and committees in Canberra, and I think um, one of a great mentor in my life is Wendy McCarthy, um, and I actually wrote her an old fashioned letter and said, you know, essentially, would it be mad to to think that I could um, move my life and my interests into Sydney? And she said, no, of course, there's, there's plenty that needs to be done here. And um, the time that I served, the years that I served on the Central Sydney Planning Committee um, really was a way of learning quite deeply the way um, this city and its communities operate and um, the approach to development in the city, which... Um, at that time and continuing has been really focused on how design, mm. the design of the city, can make everybody's lives um, much richer. So now to your book, uh, Places Women Make. Uh, there seems to be some natural tension in the, in the book between talking about the role of uh, women as great designers whose work has been undervalued uh, because they don't have a Y chromosome uh, versus saying that there is a different design style that uh, women designers bring. Uh, and you t uh, talk about, for example, Zaha Hadid, whose work doesn't doesn't speak it, it, it doesn't speak to me as being uh, particularly feminine or particular a, a particular 
gendered style of design, uh, but it is extraordinary that she's uh, the first woman who was uh, uh, awarded a range of different accolades. Um, but then also you talk about women-friendly cities. So tell me about the extent to which those two perspectives come through in, in how you think about women as designers and women-friendly spaces. Well, um, writing a book is um, a craft and a, a challenging um, craft in which you work out what is the story that you really want to tell. Mm. And when I first had the idea and the publisher at Wakefield Press encouraged me um, to write, he said, why don't you tell the story um, of the heritage story of Adelaide and the, the conservation, if you like, of that great Victorian colonial mm. Australian city. Um, but as I went more deeply into telling what might have been my story, it seemed that I didn't want to tell my story at all. What I wanted to explore was um, the idea that in Australia, um, a city that with European occupation is young, what we have built has largely been designed <coughs> by men. And I found myself exploring the idea, how would it be different mm. if women had been the designers of more of our cities? And um, it led me away from a feminist rant and into a discovery of... Um, what women, how women have contributed mm. um, and wanting to acknowledge that. But also, um, I guess, brushing up against what makes it harder for women. Zaha Hadid did not have a building constructed in London for 18 years and yet clearly she um, was a phenomenal architect and designer. So there's something going on there. I sort of, um, I explored for the book a wonderful conversation with the landscape architect Catherine Gustafsson, who, um, whose work I admire. She, she's done some difficult things. She designed the Princess Diana Memorial. Yes, in, in Hyde Park. Yeah, and as she said, the hardest thing to do was to get it built um, because obviously everybody had a stake in that project but also um, Chicago's Millennium Parklands, a grassland with Piet Uldolf's planting, is, um, it's a beautiful place. But she, she um, talks of a design sensibility that women have but that some men can have too. And um, I think that that's where I kind of landed, what we need is a particular kind of design sensibility and perhaps that's always existed but the women were not acknowledged by the partner Marion Marnie Griffin, perhaps not acknowledged because it wasn't proper that it wasn't Walter's work. You speak about the uh, fact that women have more commonly moved to landscape architecture and uh, should uh, should say that there's nothing wrong with that. I'm being married to a uh, landscape architect, um, but and you talk about people like uh, Jane Irwin, Elizabeth Peck, Sue Barnsley, and and then in the U.S. Uh, Martha Schwartz. Um, what do you think it is about 
architecture and landscape architecture that has led more men to become architects and more women to become landscape architects? Uh, I, uh, some of the women actually said, um, Catherine Gustafsson for one, oh, it was just much easier. Also, Martha Schwartz's brothers are architects. So, um, you know, in, in, in a traditional sense, it's as though um, perhaps landscape architecture as a profession is quite young. And as you'd know if you're married to one, it kind of grew out of... Um, the, the movement of, in, in America of um, designing beautiful gardens at the turn of the century, which was very much um, seen as a, as a way that women who were both artistic and able to draw and interested in garden and landscape um, could, could you know, exercise their passion in a safe way, away from the world of architecture and men and... Um, and development. Mm. So um, I think that, but, but how I explore it, and I've worked, because I've worked on much public policy relating to the public places of our cities, parks and um, plazas, Barangaroo even was the last place I did community consultation work on. Um, because I've done that work, what I do understand is that landscape architects bring this incredibly holistic um, way of looking at the design of place, mm. building and the spaces between that um, are as important as the building itself. Yes, uh, as uh, someone once put it to me, uh, architects do buildings, landscape architects do everything else. Uh, but uh, it, it's interesting to me too to think about the formal barriers. You quote architect Andrea Neild as saying that women weren't allowed on Australian building sites until the early 1970s. That were such blokey environments. And so that by necessity meant that it was difficult to be productive as an architect if you couldn't go onto the sites of, uh, of the buildings you were working on. Yeah, well, she's, um, she's a great friend. And so she spoke quite openly and frankly, and she said, "You know, she was a she was a leggy blonde architect in the in the 70s with a short skirt, and um, you would go or whatever the the fashion of the time was, and you she worked on Piemont Ultimo in the redevelopment mm. that was a massive urban renewal project in Sydney at the time." Um, she worked on that and she said, you know, even the girly calendars that they had in the, the lunchroom, um, you know, they couldn't be there because um, women were there. It was as though women got in the way of doing mm. business as mm. they'd always done it. But, um, you know, architects like Andrea Neild and Louise Cox um, were, were real pioneers in Australia um, and yet, that's not so long ago. Absolutely. Uh, and in thinking about women-friendly cities, presumably uh, we're also thinking about more child-friendly cities, given that historically women have done the lion's share of, uh, of, of child raising. Uh, does that you know, produce... Do, do women designers produce cities that are better fitted for the next generation? I think um, women, women. Well, now one would hope that all urban designers who are working in the public domain, in the public space of the cities, um, are thinking about seats for rest and ramps for pushers, mm. or 
um, ramps for, for those with challenges with access, um, older people, shade, um, trees for children to climb. Um, they, one would hope, are all fundamental, but um, sadly, often only the best urban designers. So in the inner parts of the city, as we have more people living um, in apartments, we are getting better public domain. But in the suburbs of our cities, um, there's still so much to be done. Yes. And I, I think about the conflict between Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses, and uh, that to me seems in some sense a, a conflict between a sort of... Um, madmen car-driving city versus a city which is friendly and chatty where you feel you can let your kids go and play on the streets. Um, The more vehicular a city becomes, the more dangerous it is for for little kids to uh, to, to be out on the streets. Yeah, I mean, Jane Jacobs was a serious economist who was just accused of being a sort of mad housewife Um, by Robert Moses, as you know, and um, she valued the connection of village life. Mm. And um, you asked me earlier what what was special about Adelaide. Well, I think smaller cities like Adelaide and Brisbane, Perth to a degree, Canberra, the suburbs are their own sort of villages. They, They have their own main street, Um, In Sydney too, um, the best councils have really tried to focus, and I'm talking about um, perhaps not the the whole of the metropolis of Sydney, but certainly what is the coastal strip and the central strip and and quite a long way to the west, even Parramatta, Mm. is trying to build the idea that while it's having density, it is also a walkable, connected village. So women um, understand the need um, for connection with community. I um, wrote about and, and often have spoken about, you can design for accidental connectedness. And um, there's now work being more directly done on how do cities affect our psychology? How do they affect our mental health? Mm, mm. Um, and certainly the design of good places to accidentally connect can help with um, the loneliness of an isolation of old age or just being single in the city. You've uh, done some recent research uh, or commissioned some recent research by the Sydney Women's Fund around this, haven't you? Yeah, Um we, I was very excited. Sydney Women's Fund hosts, sorry, Sydney Community Foundation hosts Sydney Women's Fund, and um, last year we commissioned um, Rebecca Huntley to um, do a slightly unusual piece of research, which was looking for the hopes, fears, and dreams of Sydney women. Um, why I say it's unusual, when I briefed her, I said, we'd, we'd like you to talk to women aged 18 to 75. 
And she quickly said on her all surveys cut off at 65, age 65. And, and I said, no, well, that's ridiculous because um, we know that women are working longer and are playing, um, even if they're maybe not employed, are playing much more active lives. So um, we wanted to look at and, and establish a picture if Sydney were 100 women, what does that look like? And explore how um, the changes that this city has seen over um, the last 15 years as it's become a global city, how that's sort of impacting on the hopes and opportunities for women. Yes. You spoke before about how the desire to protect heritage was one of the factors drawing you into uh, uh, public life and uh, you've got in the book a discussion of various heroines for heritage, as you refer to them, uh, including uh, Pat Hills. Uh, do you think there's a, a sense in which uh, women have been uh, more disposed to, to be at the forefront of campaigns to preserve what is great about our, our history and, and perhaps, say, bulldozing it in order to create the next new, next new edifice isn't the greatest idea? Uh, yeah, well, I think um, perhaps it's time to mention the Lord Mayor of Sydney, Clover Moore, who um, also, when she first um, ran for, for um, public election... Um, was a very strong advocate for heritage. And yet um, in the years, and I think it's sort of three 12 terms, it must be 12, maybe 14 years that she's been Lord Mayor, There's the city's seen enormous development. Mm. So I think women have the sensibility about thinking what do we keep and how do we develop, not... Um, so that so that that we have the connection to the past, um, and yeah, I mean the the we look at Sydney Harbour, and part of its beauty is actually the landscape edges around the harbour, and there were a group of doctors' wives that preserved, I think it's about twenty five hectares of foreshore that was going to be turned into um, a housing estate. And they were middle-class housewives who started the green bands. Um, but they cared about the sense of place. And I think our heritage can be both built, but it can also be the landscape. Mm. There's always a tension, I suppose, between preserving those spaces and ensuring that people can buy apartments at affordable prices. Uh, and that, that tension, I guess, is, is there particularly I think about the, the fastest growing category of homelessness in Australia being older women uh, who uh, presumably hit particularly hard in, in environments in which um, we don't allow development. So how do you think through that, uh, that tension? Look, it's, um, it's enormously challenging. Our research done in June last year um, told us that in, in Sydney, Greater Sydney, only 54% um, of women work. And of the women who work, 48% earn $34,000 or less. So that single finding um, tells you so much about the future lives of those women mm. um, and, and why it is that older women are the largest 
growing group of homeless women because um, we also know that women um, spend 90% of anything that they earn on family and community and men typically um, put more like 40%. Mm. So um, women, we found, are optimistic. Maybe that tells us they're optimistic. Um, But... Only 11% also said they felt they would have enough retirement savings to retire comfortably. So the challenge of how we're going to house older women is um, an immediate issue. Um, Some of the developers are now both for older people as well as for younger people are actually building build-to-rent accommodation. Um, Mervac are building one building in Sydney and in Melbourne at the moment. It, it's an experiment in a way. And the idea for them, I think, is, is accepting that for many young people, not buying might be the answer. But if you're not going to buy, and the same with older women, you at least want to have certainty and security of yes. where you're renting and a quality. What do you enjoy about apartment living? Um, I actually quite enjoy the vertical village now. Um, it was an adjustment initially, but um, you are, in a sense, part of a community mm. um, within the building that, that you live in. Um, and, you know, there'll always be disagreements and, and chatter and this and that, but um, I think... Uh, you feel your footprint is more sustainable. Mm. Um, the climate challenge is such... It's the catastrophe of my generation, and my generation has contributed to it. But um, we all have to think about how can we... I mean, there's many ways in which it must be mitigated. and um, but but on a day-to-day, in a day-to-day sense, um, living in a well-designed apartment mm. can really minimise the energy and consumption of a life. So um, I like that. I like the security of being able to leave windows open. Um, and I like living in an urban environment mm. where I do accidentally connect with people and know people in the street. and um, And that sense that... I'm going out and I'm going to the park and I'm going for a walk Yes. Um, rather than sliding onto the lazy boy. <laughs> and in places where it's done well, you can build community in all sorts of unexpected ways. I remember staying with a friend in Manhattan uh, over Halloween and they had a, a girl who was then uh, three uh, and there was trick-or-treating in the apartment complex. Uh, you'd had to... The, the um, front desk had asked any apartment who'd like to do trick-or-treating to register, uh, and then they got something to hang on their door, and there was a little list at the front, front desk of the apartments where you could do trick-or-treating, and then we just uh, uh, took the girl around to all the different apartments, pressed the bell and said trick-or-treat. And so in the same way as you'd get in a, in a well-connected, uh, high social capital community in America, yeah. they'd recreated that within this, yeah. this build-to-rent apartment. In, uh, in Manhattan. Yeah, 
Well, um, I, one, one year um, three different departments were hosting families for Christmas lunch in the building I live in, so they all decided to just open the door for anyone who wanted to come from, from sort of 5.30. So there Lovely. were um, quite different moods, and, mm. and, um, but somewhere for people to go. Uh, how have the learnings from your book shaped how you operate the Sydney Community Foundation and the Sydney Women's Fund? Um, I think quite profoundly my work for the last 30 years as an urbanist has been about listening to communities and listening and looking and seeing the challenges that, that presented themselves in an urban sense. And uh, it seemed a very natural progression um, to to work on what we call place-based philanthropy, mm. um, to, to seek out fabulous community workers who are tireless in usually in providing a service that there might be some core funding from government to do, but that they they and their communities see so much more need that with funding, and with some advice on how they might design programs, some mentoring, if you like, um, really enables those communities to ask for the change that they want and to have it supported by other communities who are able to give time, treasure or talent to help that happen. So the Community Foundation is in many ways a, a connector. People can give tax deductibly to it mm. and we will connect their funds to a cause and a place that they care about and want those funds to go. So I think it's really... Um, the, the I, I bring that... Uh, I've brought we must listen and hear what the community wants so we, we do call-outs asking um, for communities to apply for funding... Um, and we, where we see something happening in one area but we've heard in another area that's a problem, mm. we'll encourage the charity to go to that place and see if we can find the funds to help that to happen. So it's a matter of feeding your learnings back up to the, uh, to, to, uh, to the charities rather, yeah. rather than simply... back back to the donor and, and yeah, I mean, I, I said earlier, you know, my... My first career, I was a journalist, and I think the ability to sort of see what's going on, to hear what's going on, was very strict chaining at the ABC in the in the middle 70s, and to synthesise that into mm. something very simple that people can understand and respond to um, is what we try to do at the Community Foundation. Are you also trying to reshape places as well and to, to what extent are you putting your, your urbanist uh, uh, work into, into action? That's my dream um, Andrew and certainly the community foundations in the US um, where they um, have been the main form of community collective giving for a hundred years. Mm. Um, if I give you the example of Cleveland which um, was where they began um, their foundation is more than 100 years old and has billions in its corpus. 
And when Cleveland became, you know, the second or third poorest city in the US with after the GFC and the collapse of the car economy, mm. um, the Cleveland Community Foundation moved into urban renewal and the redesign of the city, um, also the creation of jobs through that urban urban renewal and the repopulating of the city. So um, in Australia, the, the oldest and most evolved community foundation is the Lord Mayor's Charitable Fund in Melbourne. Mm. And um, the CEO, Catherine Brown, is very focused on climate change mitigation programs, also funding programs and housing for homeless older women. Um, so in a sense, yes, transforming place. Mm. We um, don't yet have um, a large corpus, despite the billions in philanthropy invested in Sydney. Sydney Community Foundation has been um, managing a f uh, we, what we've built up to is two and a half million, raising about a million a year and funding programs. But um, to rebuild place is certainly on my agenda. Mm. Funds permitted, it would immediately um, begin because you can truly only transform people when they have opportunity. In one community, Warwick Farm, we did assist the community to get a basketball court. It was their wish list five years ago, and that's made a difference to a, a small suburb with no mm. sports facility. So a sort of unexpected way of uh, building community there. Yeah. So Jane, uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, what a hard question. Um, I, I, I think um, the advice I'd have given myself was perhaps to stay in one career, although I've had a marvellous time roving around a number of careers. Um, I was very fortunate to be a news journalist and trained um, at a time when the ABC um, had wonderful as I'm sure they they still do now but now kids go to sc school to university to learn journalism mm. whereas um, once you learnt it really on the job yes um, I've often thought it was a sort of fork in the road of my life that I moved away from journalism because it is a profound way to shape society um, but politics um, was where I went to from journalism. Mm. As a 14-year-old, um, I probably wouldn't have imagined politics as a possibility. But um, in a way, it, it grew out of um, the, the interest I had in community. Um, I was even, you know, tapped for by the Australian Democrats at one time also the Liberal Party, um, but I wasn't sort of interested, too mm. independent, I think. 
Uh, it's interesting, though, you when you talk about the value of staying with one career, but the portfolio approach seems to have worked out quite well for you, and I can't see any sense of regret in you about the, the career switches you've made. No, well, the thread is a strong commitment to community mm, mm. and to um, really enriching Australian life, um, mm. community life, um, in a number of ways. And... I guess um, a political career um, now it's very hard to specialise in any one area. You're you're mm. expected to be um, an advocate for so many things. Yes. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, I I used to believe that people told the truth. I believed that until. I ran for the city council in Adelaide and it was the greatest life lesson because in my life people had told the truth mm. until I um, became, you know, involved in um, reviewing the public policy of the city to establish protection for heritage and for things that I believed in. And I learnt very quickly that people... Um, are willing not to tell the truth if it's going to get them further. And sadly, you know, that's 30 years ago. Um, now in public life, there's constant debate about what is truth. Mm. When are you most happy? Um, I'm really most happy when I'm with my family. Um, I've got two sons who um, I'm proud of and, and love dearly, but I've also got um, a wonderful extended family. Um, so really, with the family in a green space, really, in a garden, probably. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I read fiction. <laughs> what are you reading at the moment? Um, I'm actually reading... Um, a book which isn't fiction called Belonging by Simon Sharma, which is the history of the Jewish people from about 1400 to 1900. So I have ranged into non-fiction, but as a writer, if anyone could write history that feels closer to storytelling, I don't yes. know. Um, it feels as though <coughs> I'm, I'm almost reading a historical novel. Yes. Um, but I do um, love to escape into fiction. And I guess I walk also to, to stay fit and to have ideas. I think so much of Places Women Make was written while I was walking and then I had to get it down. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Um, do you have favourite fiction writers? Um, I do. Um, I, Jane Eyre is a very special book in my life. So, um, yeah, the Brontes. Um, I... Distant relatives um, I love of mine Anne, I should uh, I throw in. Sorry? Distant relatives of mine I should throw in. Oh, that's exciting. Um, Anne Patchett, people like Anne Patchett. Mm. Um, I read, yeah, I do read quite a lot of women writers. Um, Shirley Hazard, actually, as an Australian writer, is a wonderful writer. Transit of Venus, I think some of those... Early books, Ruth Park, 
actually. Mm. I read Ruth Park's Sydney, which for readers interested in women writers and cities um, and and listeners, uh, that's a wonderful book actually on the city. So, yeah, I'm I'm pretty um, sort of broad in my reading taste, and of course, I am part of a book club, so. The choice is not always my choice. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Yes, chocolate and fashion and design and all that that encompasses because (laughs) it isn't um, entirely sustainable. But I am a keeper. I'm not a hoarder, but I'm a keeper of things. Um, I'm probably, you know, slightly nostalgic. And finally, Jane, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, it, it probably sounds corny, but my father has been, um, you know, a, and, and um, my brother, who would get it from him, my brother Nicholas Jose, um, a writer... And uh, he's a novelist um, he's a novelist and he's a sinologist mm. he's an expert on all things Chinese and he was in China at the time of Tiananmen Square and he's always been a very clear um, ethical voice for what happened in that country and um, he re-established PEN, which is an organisation in Australia and and globally that um, enables the voices of people. And so, in fact, they're close to home. My father and brother are both people who have always treated everyone as though they are family and they have um, the right to, to be doing whatever it is that's their heart's desire. So I think they are, they are the role models. Jane Jose, uh, urban humanist, thank you for taking the time to speak on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week... I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.